have a ball at Faneuil Hall. We love the old town team. Take the green line to the sicko sign. We love the old town team. Oh, the hey, everybody. Welcome into the Old Town Podcast. I'm Tim McMaster, joined this week by Jen McCaffrey and Marissa Morris making her debut. She's a producer here at The Athletic um, and she's a Yankee fan. And that's why we're having her on, because we are going to take a look back and relive Game 4 of the 2004 American League Championship Series. You may have checked it out uh, last week. They aired it on YouTube. It's obviously available on YouTube. Um, but if you haven't seen it recently, feel free to watch the game first and then listen to the podcast. Um, but we're going to break it down. We wanted to have an extra special spin. That's why we invited a, a Yankee fan or, along for the ride um, to kind of relive the pain one last time. So I'll start there. Marissa, um, we do some other podcasts together, obviously. Um, you were at Game 7 of the 2003 American League Championship Series, the Aaron Effing Boone game. You were there as a Yankee fan, so you deserve everything you get in this podcast today. Well, I don't know why we didn't want to review that game because <laughs> that was really uh, the most exciting game in my opinion. But yeah, I decided to rewatch it like you asked. And it was it was very tough for me to watch. I'm not going to lie. I really don't know how the Yankees lost this game, but obviously we'll get into that. So yeah, in all seriousness, we appreciate you reliving the pain and coming yeah, it was on. Tough. Um, you know, you were my first thought to, well, and I didn't know you had been at game seven when yes, I asked. And I was nine. Was just a bonus. Yeah, as a nine-year-old. And then, Jen, it's kind of interesting for you, I think, because when this happened in 2004, you were a Red Sox fan, I think in high school, you said, um, but now you rewatch it as a reporter, as, you know, the, you know, everybody says you become a reporter for a team, you almost immediately kind of lose that fandom. So was it a lot different watching it this time, or did those emotions still come back from from uh, fan Red Sox fan Jen McCaffrey. Yeah, it was interesting watching it like from this perspective. I hadn't seen that game in a really long time. I re- like I remembered um, I was 16 at the time. So I kind of remembered uh, just, you know, like watching from my family room with like my dad and my dog uh, and, and kind of just, yeah, the, the highs and lows of like that series. Um, and of course, the game itself was exciting. So I mean, as even as a reporter, you're you know, when you're watching a game like that, um, you know, you're still you're not void of emotion in terms of, you know, the excitement in the stands or kind of the tension or, you know, the uh, whether, you know, the, the team feels deflated or or elated or, you know, anything in between. So. Um, so, yeah, you definitely could feel I, I feel like watching this even like on your laptop uh, on YouTube, you know, you know, 15 years later, you could still feel the tension or even, you know, leading up to the to the ninth, just the despair of them losing again and all the signs in the stands of like, uh, you know, give me this one thing before I die. It's just so many, <laughs> so many uh, like dour and upset Red Sox fans. And then uh, and then kind of to know what was coming was uh, was pretty, pretty uh, cool, I guess, to to look back on. So, yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting kind of uh um, reflection or an interesting kind of like assignment to, to be put on. Yeah. And just for background from my perspective of this is I was, um, I was in local sports at the time, but in Pennsylvania. So I watched this game as a full Red Sox fan and, and just, um, you know, the pain and anguish and all of it was, was there. And now rewatching it, I did think it was interesting because 
the stress was gone because you know how it ends, but then you still, you know, the emotions I thought were still there. Um, when Dave Roberts' fingers hit the bag and they rule safe, I still kind of got a little bit of a, you know, a, a tingle, a little goosebumps from just hearing it and seeing it again um, as I've been able to kind of keep that Red Sox fandom through the years and, and still a big fan here even as a host of this podcast. All right, we broke well, this wait, into... wait, speak for yourself yeah. <laughs> that the, the stress was gone because I think from a Yankee fan perspective, the stress just mounted knowing what was coming. Knowing the game. So. <laughs> you, and you, and you had like, agreed how? to watch it all the way. Yes. So <laughs> so we're breaking this up into four chapters the same way, uh, Jen, that you did in your story. And if nobody read that story, go back and check that out as well as Jen kind of rewatched the game and, and took notes through it. We'll, we'll get into a lot of that. But innings one through three, then we'll do four through seven, or four through six, seven through nine, and then uh, 10, 11, and 12. And it's interesting because it really does play out that way almost in four acts as far as this game goes. So let's start from the beginning. Inning number one, Derek Lowe's on the mound because Tim, and you pointed this out, uh, Jen, Tim Wakefield was supposed to get the start, but he was kind of the sacrificial lamb in game three when they got routed. So I'll call him grumpy Derek Lowe goes out there because he wasn't thrilled that he wasn't a starter in this series. Um, but this was kind of the beginning of his heroics for the Red Sox, right? Yeah, so, I mean, you kind of can, uh, you get that kind of background. And I, I, I had remembered this, but also just kind of forgotten some of the details of it and, and uh, about, yeah, how game three obviously was the shellacking 19-8 to and they were down, you know, and, and basically uh, down and out, basically, and, and Wakefield was trying to, helped Francona out and went to him in game three and said, I'll kind of help stabilize things here and gave up the game four start um, because uh, I think it was Laskanik and Mendoza couldn't couldn't really um, stop the bleeding in in, uh, in game three and they just really didn't have any other arms. So he gave up his start and low got the start in game four and uh, Joe Buck and Tim McCarver were basically just, you know, re- rehashing how, how low was so, uh, angry that he, he'd been in the rotation all year and got kind of banished to the bullpen for uh, the playoffs. And this was like his first start. And uh, he kind of, you know, he mentioned that Francona had said to, to McCarver and Buck, if he goes out there and pitches angry and pitches well because of me, then good. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, he, and basically he did um, for, you know, the first few, you know, few innings that he was in there before he got taken out. So um, yeah, it was a kind of a, a thing that you kind of remember like in the back of your mind, but not something that uh, is like at the forefront, obviously, when you think of this game. And he was angry when he got pulled, too. I thought that that was kind of they talked about it at the top. And then Francona goes and gets him later in the game. And even though he pitched well, uh, he had obviously given it up at that point, And he he's kind of stomped off the mound as the crowd gives him a standing ovation. It was it was definitely interesting. And I didn't remember any of that. And you mentioned Francona. Oh my God, he was so young in 2004 and it almost just goes to show what managing the Red Sox does to somebody because I think if you look at 2007, he had already aged like 20 years in those three years, but he was so young in 2004 and they talked about how the fan base had criticized him kind of through the playoff to this point and I think back on that playoff run, 04 and 07, and I just remember him pressing all the right buttons, but I guess that kind of started in this game um, Marissa, thinking back, what was the what was the outsider's thought on Terry Francona as a manager? Well, he wasn't. You, of course, he wasn't Grady Little, right? He wasn't Grady Little, so <laughs> right. it was you know. 
I remember in 2003 when Grady Little left Pedro in and the Grady Little chance, like, oh my gosh, that was, you know. So Francona was a new face. Um, and honestly, back then, it was just somebody that you thought, you know, the Yankees were still going to come out on top. Like, watching this whole game back then, you know, you always felt like the Yankees would figure it out. That he would, Francona would slip up and the Red Sox would screw up and the Yankees would come out on top because they had for so many years, you know. And El Duque gets the start for the Yanks. His final season with the Yankees, uh, he was 38 according to baseball reference. Who knows how old he actually was. Um, but <laughs> but one thing that I think we all kind of noticed when watching the game, Hal Leiter, who was still a player at the time, uh, was the third man in the booth with Joe Buck and Tim McCarver. And he talked about spin rate with El Duque. And Jen, it was like listening to um, somebody talk in 2020 about spin rate. And while Al Leiter, I think, was rough around the edges as a broadcaster since he was still a player at this point, you could kind of see the makings of what he would become because just insightful talking about something like spin rate way before we yeah, did. Yeah, I actually had like a, a section in this, this. So this story that I wrote about that game was in, um, as long as it was, I had an additional 1,500 words that got cut out of it. <laughs> and that was something that got cut uh, because, yeah, we just needed to try to make it a little bit flow a little bit better. But, yeah, when I was listening to this and he's uh, – He's on the broadcast with them. I think he was uh, with the Mets at the time because they showed uh, Rudy Giuliani, of course, in the stands wearing like his uh, Yankees cap and he was all uh, flustered. He's like, he said something like, uh, oh, well, you know what New York team he roots for or something like that. <laughs> uh, of course, that wasn't that long after 2001. So, I mean, obviously Giuliani was a lot different uh, figure then than he is now. But, uh, but yeah, he mentioned um, about yeah uh, El Duque's curveball and uh, and just sort of yeah the spin rate and the curveball and how Sandy Koufax um, his curveball he's like I had heard that someone found out Sandy Koufax's uh, curveball spins five times faster than the average or spun five times faster than the average and I was listening to this and I was like no one talked about this kind of stuff back then and nice. I just thought it was really interesting uh, and I was trying to like look it up from that perspective back then and I couldn't really like find anything um, but then yeah I ended up getting cut when I when I had the final version of the story but yeah it was it was kind of funny to hear someone talk about that back then. Yeah, it goes to show the players kind of knew what they were talking about then with spin rate and, and everything. All right, so talk about Francona making the right decisions. And top of the second inning, runner on third after Matsui had doubled. And Matsui was just on fire in the series, 10 for 16 at that point. Uh, but Francona, in a scoreless game in the second inning, brings the infield in, which generally you wouldn't think to do, but it's a do-or-die type game that can't allow runs. Um, Posada hits a bouncing ball to shortstop. Cabrera able to come home with it to get Matsui. And here's one of those things where Francona pressed the right buttons, Jen. And, and looking back, I remember it. And this ends up being a one-run game, and every game count, and every run counted, obviously. And this is a huge play in the game, even though the Yankees would eventually take the lead early. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it was something, yeah, that they obviously uh, Buck and McCarver kind of harped on that uh, that Francona was kind of like pushing the right buttons at that time. And um, of course, yeah, again, and it comes back kind of to pay off for them uh, for the Red Sox later on in such a tight game. So uh, to kind of have that foresight and just, uh, you know, with in such a high pressured game to kind of pull off a move like that is obviously um, what made him so what made Francona so great. But um, yeah, I mean, it just a kind of a, a good a good move in that sense uh, to, to keep the game as close as possible, even though the Yankees would, would end up going up. Uh, I think it's the next inning or so. Yeah, they would go up on this. Here you go. 
A-Rod goes into left center field. Back at the wall, Alex Rodriguez has hit one over the monster to make it 2-0 New York. Now that ball right down the pipe. Like hitting it off a tee. Just a little salt in the wounds there for Red Sox fans. Like hitting it off a tee. Marissa, 2-0 Yankees. You have to think, World Series, here we come. Absolutely. And because it was A-Rod, you know. The Red Sox had tried to get A-Rod. And they talked about it in the they broadcast. Certainly did. $12 million difference. <laughs> yeah. So the fact that it was A-Rod hitting that two-run homer to take the lead in game four. I mean, I think I can speak for Yankee fans saying we were feeling yeah, really good. We'll get to it, but moment. I feel like there was very few points in this game where you probably didn't feel really good as a Yankee fan because there's just all that history yes. that you're kind of thinking back on. There was a fun play after that where the ball got thrown back on the field. Uh, Damon picks it up, throws it back into the out of the field, and then it's thrown back again. Finally, Joe West puts it in his pocket. And and I thought when I saw that, oh, my God, Joe West was a, was an umpire in this game. And this is the only thing I remember about it. That's amazing that he didn't somehow become some controversial part right. <laughs> of this baseball game. <laughs> um, all right, so three innings down, and it's two to nothing Yankees. Um, so chapter one to New York, and it looks like they're bound. But luckily, you know, we look back on this and, and know what's coming. Um, so you go ahead to innings four through six, our second chapter that we'll talk about. And it kind of eased back in. Like innings four and five were just kind of ho-hum back and forth. Um, there was a flashback in the broadcast um, during the fourth inning of Aaron Boone because they had to kind of get that one in there for you, Marissa. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then in the fifth inning, the Red Sox finally kind of mount a rally. Uh, Millar walks to lead it off, which is foreshadowing for the ninth a little bit. Um, Damon struggles. He continues one for 15 after his at-bat. But there was some really good at-bats here to eventually get the bases loaded um, for David Ortiz. And somehow, maybe... I don't remember 2004. Maybe it's it's further back in my mind than like you think about. But the way pitchers were handled back then, Jan, Jan, somehow El Duque was allowed to stay in this game with the bases loaded when he clearly had lost his best stuff to face David Ortiz. This would never happen now. Yeah, and it's I mean it kind of also goes to show how Ortiz, you know, had was coming onto the to the map as like this big figure, but that was really the first year that he had kind of. Uh, had some big hits and was like entering his stardom for the Red Sox. So I feel like he wasn't nearly as feared, um, you know, as we view him nowadays as he was back then. Um, but yeah, I think it just also goes back to that the Yankees kind of thought they had this in control and, uh, you know, and just we're, we're going to, we'll pitch to him here and get out of this and, and kind of uh, save the bullpen uh, for the next couple innings. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it is, it was throughout the whole game, I kind of was thinking of, you know, this was, uh, not the David Ortiz yet that that we know, um, and of course the way the game ends, uh, you know it, it it kind of is. I feel like the sort of the beginning of that. Um, and he had had some big hits obviously throughout the regular season, but I've, but you know this was in in back in '03, but this was kind of like what you can look back to as sort of uh, his 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 big like his big moments, I guess. Yeah, the legend began. Marissa, what what do you remember about David Ortiz in 04 as opposed to now that he's been a Yankee killer for, you know, basically 15 years for the rest of his career and, and now into retirement? 
I, I think I was still scared of Ortiz and Manny, um, the two of them back to back. Probably in the more lineup. Manny though, right? Yeah, yeah, probably more Manny. Um, but still, you never wanted to face those two with runners on base. Um, and that fifth inning, I they had two double play chances in that yeah. inning, and they walked Bellhorn. Like, <laughs> come on. That guy was batting, like, he had, like, 25 strikeouts in the series, and you walk him. Like, they, Al Duque should have came out right after that. I mean, I don't know if that's how, you know, because how we view pitching today, but I don't know how he stayed in there in that fifth inning. Yeah, Millar walked, Bellhorn walked. There was some great at-bats in that inning, too, uh, fouling off pitches, and, and they finally get the bases loaded. And that set up this. Ortiz into right center, and the Red Sox have taken the lead in game four. So that was it, 3-2, to two, Red Sox in front um, and, and feeling good at this point. Um, but as a Yankee fan, Marissa, still feeling good even though you're losing? I think still feeling good. Yeah. I mean, you, you got to think, like, they're going to come back. You know, the, going back to that 2003 series, they're going to come back. Like, that's just what the Yankees did. And, and even when they got down, they always came back. Yeah, and so, they did it immediately. Right. <laughs> yeah, top of the sixth inning, the Yankees come right back with two runs, even, and they, they're back in front four to three like that. A couple of infield singles that went to Bellhorn, and you mentioned them walking Bellhorn. Um, the crowd actually chanting after those ground balls, pokey, pokey. And now mm-hmm. Bellhorn had his moment in the series. He had the big three-run home run in game six, and he have his place in, in kind of Red Sox history. But I didn't remember... Um, the fans being on him that much and wanting to see Pokey Reese in the game at this point. Yeah, me neither. That was something else that stuck out to me. I, I remember him, you know, not having a good start to the series and same with Damon um, and both of them like combining two for like 35 or something like that before, you know, the second he- second half of the series, they kind of picked up the pace. But yeah, I didn't realize um, how... Uh, how like derided the, uh, uh, Bellhorn was and how he bu- uh, jumbled a couple balls and yeah people were just like really raining down on him and um, I, I kind of didn't remember that because I from that series I remember that big that big uh, home run and like just everything that he kind of contributed towards the end of that um, ALCS that uh, it kind of made me laugh that that was the perspective you know during that game and the during the first few games of him. Yeah, and he had that home run that was um, – they had to the, the get together and talk about it because it went off the chest of a person in, in left field there, and it was kind of controversial, but it was clearly a home run. So to kind of sum things up, and you made the point in your story, Jen, that you liked Tim McCarver and Joe Buck, and I agree. They were, I mean, I'm kind of on the fence with Tim McCarver in his career, but I've always been a Joe Buck fan. Um, and you question why people don't like them. But one reason is because they come out with comments like this. And this is a great broadcaster comment, I think, that sums up the moment. But if you're a fan of the team, it makes you not like Joe Buck. Here's right after the Yankees retook the lead. A deflating and demoralizing inning for the Red Sox, who had just taken the lead in the bottom of the fifth. And that sums it up perfectly. And, and it's the emotions in the stadium. But if you're a Red Sox fan, you're watching the game, and you hear that, you're like, Joe... I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it at all. Um, but it was Matsui again um, and Marissa, the Yankees, back on top and, and rolling. Feels like they were rolling at that point. The Red Sox held the lead for 16 minutes. <laughs> like, this is why I always thought that they would pull it out. You know, the Yankees always came back. It was like when they were down, they always came back. And a 16-minute lead was gone before you know it. 
and I had we both had this comment. I I had it in our random thoughts that I have for the end. But um, the production of this game was really done by Fox. I'll give them some credit. They came back from break after the Yankees had taken the lead, uh, and they used the track "Hard Knock Life." playing in the incredible. background yeah with and they showed the plays by bellhorn and everything and it just kind of summed it up and and to have that ready to go i mean i guess obviously you're going into this game thinking heartbreak for the red Sox, but to be able to pull that track and put that together um being in tv my whole career i just have an appreciation for that jen did did that stick out to you at all as as more of a print person yeah no i definitely noticed that um they yeah. were good with that kind of stuff and uh and just even like uh, panning the crowd with a lot of different like signs and stuff and the, the, the signs from the Red Sox fans and even those like W.E.E.I., those like white posters. That was something I noticed that made me laugh that I remembered, um, you know, those posters being passed out, you know, uh, that say like believe and all that stuff. Um that they had passed out like throughout that postseason and even in like subsequent postseason. So like people, people just kind of in the stands themselves, I thought they were pretty good with kind of like panning to find the right people and the, set the mood, I guess, of uh, what the what the park was feeling. That moment in the game was a tough time to be a Red Sox fan. These are difficult times to be doctors everywhere. The last thing we want to do is venture out into medical facilities if we don't have to. If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment ASAP, and that's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with your doctor, a licensed doctor in your state, all from the comfort of home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides that treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have a question or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments, and you can cancel anytime. If you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com slash Red Sox for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash Red Sox for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. So through six innings, and it's four to three Yankees, and it just feels like it's getting late. Obviously, Mariano Rivera uh, waiting out there in the ninth, maybe the eighth inning, and it feels like this has to get going, and then Joe Buck drops this line. It's only a one-run lead for the Yankees, but you get the feeling this crowd feels like it's a much bigger lead for New York. And Terry Francona had to feel that too because in the seventh inning, he goes with Keith Folk. And Keith Folk, just a hero of this postseason run. But, Jen, I didn't remember that he was in this game in the seventh inning. Yeah, I knew he had had a lengthy um, uh, relief appearance in this game, but I didn't realize it was three whole innings, um, which kind of <laughs> like blew my mind because obviously like nowadays, that's nuts. But, um, but yeah, uh, I, I, had, I had memories of him, you know, being clutch and, and you know, really um, – standing out for them and obviously being like the, the most solid force for them in the, in a, in a weak bullpen overall. Um, but I didn't remember that it was three whole innings that he had, uh, he came out and kind of shut them down. And he had to come in because Timlin really kind of struggled and labored and, and it wasn't all his fault. There were ground balls that just play plays weren't made on, but, but overall he just wasn't the Timlin that, uh, we saw a lot of times when the Red Sox were making these runs. Um, in the eighth inning, they played Sweet Caroline, which I remember was still new back then. They had started it in 2002. Uh, bottom of the eighth inning, Mariano enters the game. And if you're a Red Sox fan, I remember thinking, okay, maybe it's better that he's in now because maybe they can get him tired. But that was also like 
this is just wishful thinking. Like, <laughs> Mariano's in. This is not feeling good right now. Manny let off with a single, but they stranded him. They headed to the ninth inning. And, and Marissa, um, you know, when Mariano's on the mound, you just assume the game's over, right? Absolutely. And to this day, Mariano would be the person I want on the mound in that situation. Even like 100%. Li- literally at Even 40, knowing what years happens. old or whatever. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Even knowing what happens, uh, Mariano is the guy. Yeah. And, and his numbers in this series, he ended up throwing, I think, um, seven innings in the series overall. And he was he was great, but he had two blown saves because it wasn't really his fault. But he blew game five. He came in with a runner on third and gave up a sack fly. So not really a, a true blown save as far as giving up a hit. But but he got credited with the blown save in that one, too. So back to back nights for the great Mariano Rivera. But they did comment on the broadcast, Jen, that even though. He had never done this against the Red Sox in the postseason. The Red Sox had faced him so many times already, and they would continue to over the years, that they just had better success against him than any other team. It's it's in the stats because of how often they had faced him. Yeah, they had flashed a few different graphics that were like surprising that I hadn't really, you know, remembered, um, you know, now kind of from that perspective. But they had this one that uh, since 2001, and this was in 04, He'd had seven uh, seven blown saves and 22 chances against the Red Sox, but 12 in 170 chances against every other team um, over that span. So it was like wild to see um, how many times he had tripped up against the Red Sox. And even though he's this like superhuman person, um, it did still feel like that there was like this sliver of a chance, I think specifically because there was that game back in July, um, the the Veritech-A-Rod fight game um, where Bill Miller hits the walk-off home run. Um, so, I mean, that was, I think, you know, kind of in the back of a lot of people's minds of, you know, this is not looking good, but hey, we have nothing else to root for. So, you know, why not kind of hold on to the sliver of a sliver of a hope and, and you know, then you know what happens from there on. Yeah, and the, these games were so long, obviously, that it, it's getting late in the night at this point. And, and Kevin Millar starts it off with a walk. And the one thing that stands out to me about the walk was just the fact that it was kind of an easy walk. I mean, Mariano did not have control at that point. Pitches were all over the place. Um, ball four was up and in, and Millar almost had to kind of get out of the way. So then they pinch run, obviously, with Dave Roberts. Um, and, and it was the first pitch that he went on but three throws over to first base, and one of them was really close, but Dave Roberts just able to get back in. And then finally, the first pitch to Miller, and this is what we had. Miller still waiting for his first pitch. Roberts is going. Posada's throw. Roberts, safe. And I mentioned it that I still get kind of chills when he gets in there safely because, man, it was so close. And I remember watching it, seeing the umpire say safe, and thinking, was he though? And and as a Yankee fan, Marissa, were you thinking, no way was he safe? Because it was so close. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was. I, it, it Mariano looked rattled, and that's tough to to do because he is Mariano Rivera. But you always thought that he would you know, get that ground ball and get out of the inning and the Yankees would be headed to the World Series. Yeah, and it was it was interesting because he gets in there safely, he calls timeout, and then they're talking it over, and Miller um, shows bunt one time, and that brings up uh, this eventually later in the at-bat. This season hanging on a bunt here 
will come to the plate. The throw by Williams. Bill Miller has tied it. And Roberts was obviously upon replay safe on the steal. And then that sets up Al Leiter saying the comment, they're going to bunt him over to third. And then the Red Sox make the decision not to. I wonder how that impacted the Yankee defense. But but Miller was a guy, Jen, that you said it had always faced Mariano well. Yeah, and he was such a kind of like an underrated guy. He was a small guy. You know, he was, uh, you know, you kind of, he was kind of like a one of the, you know, you talk about the 2003 team, but like the dirt dog kind of down in the, down and down in the dirt and third base kind of like diving for balls and everything. He was all over the place. Um, and that's, you know, he, he grinded out at bats and um, he always seemed to have success against, uh, against Rivera or, you know, more often than not. Um, and, uh, and yeah, this was obviously one case that he pulled through again. And, you know, you're not really expecting, you're expecting it to come from one of the bigger bats, like a, like a Manor Ramirez. Um, and then he's, he's the guy that kind of pulls through for them. And I think that kind of just added to, uh, the drama of it all. And then you think back to that bottom of the ninth inning after they tie the game. And obviously the stadium's electric and, and everybody's going crazy. But the Red Sox get first and third with one out. And then they end up loading up the bases. But first and third, one out. They're not able to win it. Um, and then the stress goes right back the other way. And, and to me, my feeling was, oh, my goodness, they tied it. This is amazing. But they're just going to tear our hearts out in the 15th inning or something like that and just make this whole um, life as a Red Sox fan be that much worse. Jen, do you remember what your thoughts were heading to extras? Yeah, I think, you know, and Buck mentioned it, um, you know, in the in the broadcast that, you know, Red Sox fans are probably thinking, oh, this is 2003 all over again. You know, they're just going to lose an extra innings in some heartbreaking fashion. So I think, yeah, there was this there was this uh, this thought, you know, uh, oh, they tied it up, but this is still not going to end the way, you know, that uh, that fans wanted to. So I think there was a lot of, uh, you know, kind of like false hope hanging in the air of how long are we going to get, you know, dragged through this uh, until they kind of like stab us in the heart again. Yeah, and I wonder how it would have been if the Red Sox hadn't been the home team because I feel like there was that one glimmer that when the Red Sox didn't score in like the 10th inning and the 11th inning, at least they knew they would get up again instead of it being, you know, the Yankees like in 2000, in 2003 when the Yankees were the home team. And every time they came up, there was just this dread that, oh, now this is the inning. They're going to blow it. Um, take us back, Marissa, your feelings in as we head to extra innings. Well, I, I believe Ortiz was the one that ended the inning, right, with the bases loaded. Yeah. So the fact yeah. that they end, they got out of that, yeah. like that was rough to watch to see Mariano basically give it up. But they they got out of it, you know, and they had their chance to get to the plate again. And you're thinking, okay, you know, that was rough, but hey, we're still playing and we still have a chance to finish this off. So pretty quiet 10th inning, but in the top of the 11th, the Yankees actually load the bases. And maybe this is when Boston could kind of start to hope again because bases loaded with two outs after they walked Matsui, which is a smart thing to do the way he was uh, raking in that series. Uh, Cabrera made a diving stop in that inning that kind of saved a run um, to keep it in the infield. And the Red Sox, and you brought the name up earlier, Jen, Curtis Laskanik, they have to turn to Curtis Laskanik in this spot, this guy who had gotten beaten up in, in the previous game. Um, and he becomes an unsung hero that I think – a lot of people just don't remember that name, but but he was huge in this game. 
Yeah, he'd given up, I think it was like a three-run homer to Sheffield the night before, and he'd only lasted like a third of an inning. So he was one of the reasons that Wakefield had to come into the game um, in game three because he just was getting shellacked. And so you're assuming, you know, he's coming in now in game four, and, you know, you're like, okay, this is probably it. This is probably going to be over because he was so... uh, he was so down and out, um, and he, he held on to it. So, um, yeah, just kind of another one of these, like, unsung, you know, uh, heroes, I guess. You know, not so much in Game 3, but in Game 4, if you're kind of looking back uh, on, at this one specifically and kind of what he contributed uh, in in his uh, in his time on the mound. Yeah, kind of like Bellhorn, who was the kind of the goat early in the series, gets the big home run. Everybody in this four days stretch of four straight wins kind of had their moment on that roster. It felt like all 25 players in some way um, contributed. Marissa, a little nervous after leaving the bases loaded? Yes. <laughs> oh, um, oh, this the, is the first time then. Well, I mean, nervous to an extent. You still have to think the Yankees are up 3-0 in the series. Well, you true. know, like. If you drop this game, well, you know, they're coming back 12 hours from now. So it was a, it was a nervous sense, but at the same time, you know, you still felt like the Yankees were had the strong advantage in the series. Like, it, we obviously didn't think that the Red Sox would be able to win four straight. Um, so, yes, you know, you wanted to end it right there, and the runners left on base were killer, but, you know. It, it didn't feel like the Red Sox were taking control of the series. They might squeak this one out and win this one, but never thought that that would lead to them advancing to the World Series. So we head to the bottom of the 12th. Paul Quantrill comes into the game for the Yankees, drafted by the Red Sox, made his Major League debut with the Red Sox, uh, ended up finding his way to the Bronx here later in his career. Manny singles, that brings up Poppy. And the one thing about this 12th inning is, there wasn't really enough time for drama or nerves because it was just Manny gets on base and then this. Ortiz in the deep right field. Back is Sheffield. We'll see you later tonight. And you hear the dirty water come on too, which is classic because that, I think, Jen, that was fairly new back then too, uh, that the Red Sox would play that after victories. You hear it in the back, but... It's a great call by Joe Buck, and he doesn't get credit for it because obviously we'll see you tomorrow night was his dad's call, but I think that even makes this special because, A, he's paying tribute to his father's great call from the past, but then in the moment to realize what time it is, see you later tonight. It's a great broadcast call, and I think people see it that way around baseball as a whole. I don't know if Red Sox fans fully give it the credit that it deserves. Yeah, and I think one of the good the things that he does that's you know I've always appreciated is just kind of he knows also when to to back off and and to just let the crowd noise speak for itself because um, I think that's what's so powerful in a lot of these you know chills inducing moments is you can hear like the crescendo of the crowd just like freaking out um, and that just like adds to uh, the drama and kind of the emotion of the moment. Um, and I think he's really good. Some people, you know, some broadcasters just want to keep talking and talking and giving you all these visuals and whatnot. Um, and he's, he's, I think pretty good at, at just saying what happened and then just like letting, uh, the background noise, uh, give you, you know, a feel for what, what's happening at the moment, moment in like the pandemonium of the, of the park. Yeah, and it's such a short line. See you later tonight, and then he just gives it up to the crowd. And you, because of that, you hear that music in the background. You see the Boone, fans. a hero in Game 7, you know. <laughs> and Marissa, <laughs> exactly. at this point, you're legitimately in tears, right? 
Yes. So I actually, when I'm rewatching this game, I <laughs> now remember to my mom. You, and to remind people, yes, you, were, you were ten or nine or ten years old. No, right? no I was ten. I was ten. Yeah. I was ten for this game and nine in 2003. And uh, I asked my mom. I said, "Did I cry after this one?" And she said, "Which one?" There were several times that series. So <laughs> I, I honestly, you know, I think I was upset at the time, but you always thought again the Yankees would pull it out like this was an unprecedented series comeback and nobody thought it would happen not even after this game now looking back we all see that obviously game four was a huge turning point um in everything for the Red Sox going forward but I just didn't think that they would go out and finish the series off it was five hours and two minutes and game five was five hours and 49 minutes and I think I mean, you could argue Game Five was even, even a better game. I mean, if you go back and watch that one, obviously fourteen innings. It didn't end on a home run, but it ended on the poppy walk-off hit again. Uh, Rivera blowing the save. That one had Wakefield in it, um, throwing knuckleballs that it, you weren't sure if they were going to get caught or not. I mean, Game Five was right there too, but Game Four, I guess, Jen gets a little more credit, I think, as far as history, just because it started the return. Yeah, I think, you know, game five was, yeah, right up there with the drama and the and the, like the uh, the emotion of, you know, being one of the, the best games in Red Sox and baseball history. But at the same time, we were I think we remember game four more just because there wouldn't have been a game five without the game four. And, you know, the the Dave Roberts seal and just the uh, the pressure that, um, you know, they were facing um, of of, you know, losing yet again to the Yankees. Um so I think, yeah, the game five was just as good, if not better. Uh, but, you know, again, you wouldn't have been there without game four. So that's the one that kind of gets all the, the cred and in, in just uh, the memories and kind of the flashbacks. Um, but uh, but yeah, um, both of them, they're back to back, you know, nights of just so much, so much baseball and just yeah, being so tired watching them and just the the, the stress and emotion of of, you know, sitting and watching um, that much um, tense baseball I, that I remember I just remember feeling like drained and I remember you know that one of the big storylines was that uh, that like you know work workplace productivity and school <laughs> productivity was like way down in, in the in the region just because of people going to bed at like 2 a.m. and uh, having to still get up and go to work in school um, so yeah uh, it was uh, those two those two games I think once they won game five then the pressure was really on of oh are they actually really going to do this um, and, and, and of course we know what happened. Yeah. And there was still a feeling, I think for, for a lot of Red Sox fans that they're just going to force game seven and then lose. Luckily game seven <laughs> was pretty much, uh, stress-free is just cause they got the early lead, um, and kind of, again, speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but as far as this one goes, you think about, um, unsung and, and late night, it, it was a Sunday game. Um, five hours. It ended after 1 a.m., but then the next day was a 5 o'clock game, but because it went almost six hours, you're still talking about uh, well after midnight on a Monday night when people had to go to work, but um, I wanted to bring up some unsung heroes. We've mentioned them a little bit, um, but just to focus in again, Keith Folk, two and two, or three innings, um, no hits, no runs, couple of walks, three strikeouts. Jenny threw 50 pitches, um, he would continue to be a workhorse the rest of this series into the World Series. And in a lot of ways, I feel like it cost him the end of his career because he was never the same after after this postseason run. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was like a storyline of his career is that he gave everything he had and then some um, in this in this series uh, and in this postseason run. And, and yeah, he never was able to kind of um, get back to that level after that. Um, and, you know, I think 
people uh, recognize that and like appreciate that anytime, you know, he comes back to Fenway is that uh, he kind of gave everything he had and left it out there um, and kind of, yeah, this was, this was pretty much the end of his career, just uh, giving, giving everything he had out there for these, for these games. Um, Cause it really took so much out of him and took really most of his career out of him. Marissa, does it just kill you to hear us the, talking poetically about like the, the heroics of Keith Folk? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> in that series, I'll say this, in that series, he was better than Mariano. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I, I'm covering my ears for that okay. one. <laughs> uh, the other unsung hero, Kurt, Kurt Laskanik, who we talked about, but, but just one more note on him. He wasn't good in the series. His ERA was over 10, um, but he was good in that game. He only threw 13 pitches to get the four outs that he got. Um, and here's something for you. The Kansas City Royals released Kurt Laskanik on June 18th of 2004, and the Red Sox signed him four days later on June 22nd. The Royals lost 104 games in 2004 and didn't have anywhere on their roster for Kurt Laskanik, but he managed to help the Red Sox in the the historic run of 2004. Just kind of amazing um, to think about. Marissa, we talk about the unsung heroes on the Red Sox side. Um, when you think back on this game, is there... Is there a goat? I don't mean greatest of all time, but an actual yeah. goat. I, I mean, Mariano blows the save, but, but it's Mariano. I mean, you can't right. have any hard feelings, right? So who no. do you look back on and think, ah, oh, that guy? So I actually like really had to think about this one because I felt like overall, you know, there wasn't that one person. Yeah, there's so no Buckner I'm gonna, in this game. Right. Sure. So I'm going to say the runners left on base. There were 14 guys left on base. Like, you got to get somebody home there and that's the difference in the game. So I'm going to put it on, on everybody and say 14 runners left on base is what lost the Yankees that game versus Mariano or Quantrill himself. So yeah, collectively lacking the clutch hit, uh, which is everything that until this game was the Red Sox historically was never getting the big (laughs) hit. And then it just kind of in five hours on a Sunday night kind of swung the other way. All right. Some random thoughts from the game. Um, to, to go through in this one. Uh, you mentioned the signs, Jen, um, and you had a bunch of them in your article. I wrote down some of them. Um, please just one more before one time before I die. Uh, it's not over. Believe. Somebody had one that said Patriots 20 in a row, Red Sox four in a row. Let's make history. Um, make history or wear history. There were so many signs out there um, that kind of stand out, and Fox seemed to get video of all of them. Um, as far as the crowd goes, you had Giuliani. We talked about Kurt Gowdy was there yeah. in a cowboy hat. Yep. Just great. The fun guy that had, you know, obviously early in his great broadcasting career had called Red Sox game. So it was cool that he was there to kind of witness this. Right. Yeah, there were. Yeah. And uh, just some of the other uh, like there was just some of the ads that would run like on the stadium, like behind the backstop for like AOL. Yeah. And there was like another <laughs> one for like WebMD. Like we know it like WebMD. I feel like people like they joke about nowadays to like go and check to make sure they're like not dying. Um, so I was like funny that WebMD was like the go to source back then. And like there was another guy they showed in the stands like with like a camcorder, like a handheld camcorder. And I was like, this is, you know, before smartphones, before social media, like no one had Twitter, no one, Facebook, like really was just getting underway itself. So it was just kind of funny to think it was a long time ago, you know, 15 years ago, but I still like don't think of 2004 as like being that long ago. But 
when you've put all that kind of together, um, it really does kind of like add up of of uh, of just, you know, this kind of being a different generation, really, of, you know, especially technology wise um, of just where where we were. Um, and, you know, different things on the broadcast, like Scooter, the yeah. little <laughs> graphic that explained different pitches that they don't use anymore and that they were really excited to use the, the like the the uh, the camera, like in the di- the diamond cam, they called it. It was like a perspective from the from like right in front of home plate, which was new at the time. So it was like they used that. I don't know how many like a dozen times throughout the broadcast um, that perspective. Uh, so it's just kind of like funny things like that that I noticed that obviously hadn't noticed, you know, watching back when I was 16 um, and just kind of watching from from the perspective that I that I have now. Yeah. And they had the out of town or not the out of town scores, but they had the scoreboard ticker at the bottom of the screen and, and you had it in your story. And I so the I NFL, watched the game yeah. and took notes before reading your article just so I would kind of not be biased by what you had written. But we both had this that. Um, they popped up with the Patriots score and yeah. they won that day, 30 to 20 over Seattle. Brady had a mediocre day, 19 <laughs> of 30, 231 yards, a touchdown and interception. And some of the other, like there was all the, cause it was Fox with like, all the games that day. So it was right. like Byron Leftwich and like Curtis <laughs> Martin and like all these names, like, you know, Al J. Crumpler. And I was like, wow, I haven't heard these names in such a long time. It was funny to see. I mean, like then there was like, you know, Brady and like Ben Roethlisberger. And it was like, oh, these guys are still playing. And like, I don't know, it's just funny to, funny to see all those names kind of creep across the bottom of the, the ticker there. And then in the National League, while the American League was having this series, it was uh, Astros Cardinals. Obviously, the Red Sox would end up beating the Cardinals in the World Series. But that was the great Carlos Beltran postseason. And they showed a grab a full screen at one point. He had eight home runs at that point in the postseason. He had hit one that day to help the Astros get back in that series against the Cardinals. And then that offseason, he was a free agent, obviously signed the huge contract with the Mets. And they talked on the broadcast, Marissa, about the fact that the Yankees would probably be the team that Beltran would go to because they would be one of the teams that could afford him. He ended up with the Mets, but then eventually, obviously, he ended up with the Yankees and back with the Astros where they started banging uh, trash cans. And that's where we are now in baseball. But it it brought all of that back to me. It's just funny to to see. Uh, And then he ended up back with the Mets, but as the Mets manager this offseason, but we all know how long that lasted so it all comes kind of full circle um any other thoughts from from either of you about this game as we kind of put put a bow on this jen anything else that that we didn't get to that that stood out to you the only other thing you know uh i just i hadn't i had forgotten how dominant matsui was uh from the yankee side and just you know like really i think he was like 11 for 20 in the first four games but then but then he really fell off the map over the he was like three for 14 in the final you know final uh final three games so it was just kind of like um how much guys flipped uh you know bellhorn and and damon were so bad in those first few games and then really pulled out um and and you know pulled ahead and and pushed for the team and then in the final three games so i don't know like the flip the script flipped like on a few different guys and another thing that they had mentioned that i had forgotten too was just that like i think mccarver or buck i can't remember mentioned how much more popular Matsui was than Ichiro at the time, which I had forgotten and how he was like, you know, obviously the Godzilla nickname and how massive he was in Japan. But when I think of the two of them, I always think of Ichiro as being kind of like the, the, the guy that, you know, that was the face of the face of that, you know, era for, for those guys. But um, maybe just because he played for, you know, for so long, but um, I just had that kind of like tidbit, made me laugh too because I was like oh yeah I guess he was you know really 
uh, revered and, you know, uh, so, so good at the plate, you know, during that stretch. Yeah, and he had played in Japan longer than I right. think Ichiro before coming over, and he had that kind of legendary status over there. He was great in this series. Um, he he wasn't great as long as Ichiro was, right. but uh, um, Marissa, thank you for just reliving the pain. But a- any last thoughts on this? Obviously, you have your Yankees have won a World Series since they have that you know that one yeah, to go won. against the Red Sox four. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm going to have to say, like, as hard as it was for me to watch, it was fun. You know, I think that old Yankees Red Sox rivalry, what like my childhood, like that was incredible. And the teams genuinely, I felt like hated each other. And I don't feel yeah. like it's like that um, to this day. But so, you know, maybe maybe things will get a little more heated in the upcoming years with Judge and everybody. But uh I I loved that, you know, A-Rod and Jeter and Manny and Ortiz. Um, and I remember watching this game with my grandma, who was the reason I got into baseball. So it was funny, like, watching back things and remembering stuff um, about me watching with her. And I think, like, that's the best thing about sports is, like, you know, obviously I wish that turned out different. But the fact that, like, these games, we remember so much about them and who you're with when you're watching them. Um is what makes stuff like this so fun. Yeah, I think in 2018, you kind of get that rivalry back a little bit when they placed in the playoffs, but you're right. It, it's not the, the Red Sox clearly did not like Alex Rodriguez. Yeah. There was definitely, I mean, there was a brawl during the season, obviously, um, based around that and Veritek um, kind of giving him the punch to the face. But, you know, it's not quite like that. I don't think sports in general are like that anymore. Yeah. And, and it's just, but we still love the games. Unfortunately, we don't have the games right now. Um, but that's given us a chance to kind of look back on some of these other games. And I'm sure people that are listening to the podcast have maybe tuned into some other ones too. Major League Baseball had a full gamut, including this game uh, on opening day of some different games. They've opened up the archives from 2018 and 2019. So you came back, watch back any other game. But while there's no games being played and no tournaments being played, uh, we are still getting things done here at The Athletic. Still doing podcasts, still rating great articles. Uh, Jen has the story on this game. She also uh, relived the 1998 opening day win, which is a great Mo Vaughn moment and, and win for the Red Sox. Uh, 400 of the best sports writers out there, and they're still getting to work. There's actually a Slack channel we have at The Athletic called Let's Get Weird. So, we're also offering in these times um, a 90-day trial, so check that out as well. But if you want to save 40% off a year subscription, you can go to theathletic.com slash wickedpod to save 40% off an annual subscription as well. We're still going to be putting out content until the sports actually come back. Until then, we will be um, doing these podcasts from our, our separate home. So I hope you guys are staying safe. Uh, Marissa and Jen, everything's still going uh, well as far as Social distancing. Oh yeah, just keeping <laughs> confined to my room and yep, trying to trying to stay away from uh, any uh, socialization. Same here. All right. <laughs> Hope everybody stays safe out there as well. We'll be back with you again next week here on the Old Town Podcast. Uh-huh.